Hello, and welcome to the Burning Castle podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Each episode, I speak with a changemaker learning to unlock the creative potential of a world caught in chaos. These are the artists, actors, performers, musicians, designers, thinkers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, activists, chefs, and countless others creating new paths amid crumbling institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Our guest today is Lionel Shriver. Lionel is a one-of-a-kind author, novelist, and uh, journalist, a political commentator, and essayist. You have probably know about her from her breakout book, We Need to Talk About Kevin. But before she wrote We Need to Talk About Kevin, she wrote something like seven or possibly eight previous books, which were published but didn't really do that well. We Need to Talk About Kevin was a real breakout book for her. It was about the what she calls maternal ambivalence and uh, on the part of a, of a mother of a psychopath who kills a lot of kids at his own school. That was obviously something that Lionel had tapped into um, at the time the book was published, which was around uh, 2003. But the really interesting thing about Lionel Shriver is that she manages to tap into those cultural energies again and again and again and again. And she does it in a way that really is more than tapping, it's slicing. She is kind of like, uh, if you have ever seen images of an MRI machine that creates little slices, layers of images of a human being or parts of their body. And she does that with our culture, with the times that we live in, with the economic circumstances, with the psychological storms that are raging below the surface of our lives. And all this is to say that Lionel Shriver is a master. I think at this point, that sort of goes without saying. She though is something definitive as a writer. She is something that you compare to the great writers of times past. But, and this is the really interesting but, she doesn't have the kind of profile and the kind of resume that you would expect from someone who is so talented and who has been in this game for so long. She doesn't have the fancy professorships at the fancy university. She doesn't have the long list of prizes that she absolutely without question deserves. There's no Booker Prize. There's no Pulitzer Prize. There's no National Book Award. There aren't any. And you ask yourself, how can the author of We Need to Talk About Kevin, the author of The Mandibles, which breaks down the economic situation, the economic doomsday scenario that we are all living in today, and puts that scenario into a riveting and hilarious and fascinating and educational, informative story called The Mandibles about the family of the same name. 
how can the author of Should We Stay or Should We Go, her latest book, which rips apart all the assumptions you would have about a novel of that type, which is focused on an aging couple who decide to sort of make a suicide pact with each other rather than go through the horrors of aging. How does this author not have those prizes, not have that professorship? And the answer is really, really simple. Even if it's unjust and even if it's ridiculous, which it is, and that is that Lionel Shriver has not paid her dues, her political dues, to the literary establishment's party and ideology of choice. She has dared to think for herself every single step of the way. Her writing as a journalist has essentially exposed her in the eyes of the literary establishment as a nonconformist, not one of them. And that's how they treat her. I think this points to something very, very scary, very worrying in our culture. Because if someone as great as Lionel Schreiber can be all but shut down, I mean, yes, they publish her books because books on that level, you just can't not publish them. I mean, they're just, they're too important and they're too good. But they go the rest of the way to make sure that Lionel doesn't become the kind of literary celebrity that Franzen is or Jonathan Lethem or any number of other writers today who we we know about and we talk about and get magazine covers and are judges and chairs of prizes and all the rest of it. But here's the other thing about all this, which is that it doesn't matter. It is, in the words of people who subscribe to literary establishment pieties, a construct. Whether you get the prize or not, it doesn't matter. Lionel Shriver has made a living. She has done whatever it takes to continue to honing, to hone her craft, to become a master, and then I think recently to go wherever it is that lies beyond the realm of mastery. She's managed to do it in her way. And that, as we talk about it on our episode, is not necessarily my way. It's not necessarily your way. But you and I, just like Lionel, have a way to discover or maybe to create. And that's what this is all about. That's what the Burning Castle is focused on. That's what we do here. We think about how can I take responsibility for the fire? How can I put it out? I can't say to myself, is there nobody home to put out this fire of this in this beautiful castle? The voice only says, of course, there's someone here. Of course, there's somebody home. But that voice is also telling me it's on me to go and do the hard work. If Lionel Shriver shows us anything, it's the heroism of doing the hard work, not 
a day or a week or a month or a year or a decade, but forever. It's almost scary to think of that kind of fortitude, that kind of ability to endure for the sake of a belief or a system of beliefs, which I think we could boil down to the idea that we should all be allowed to think freely. We should all push ourselves to think freely beyond all the platitudes and the pablum. Our role in this world is to think freely and act accordingly. And that means with a sense of responsibility, with a sense of obligation to the people around us and the community of which we're a part. I think you're going to love this episode. I hope you do. But whether you like the episode or not, go study the life of Lionel Shriver. Go read one of her books. I recommend actually starting with one of the more recent ones. And I think given where we are today with rampant inflation, with the dollar sort of wobbling as the global reserve currency, with families scared for their their futures. And given that Lionel predicts all this in a book she wrote at least five years ago, that's a good place to begin. But Should We Stay or Should We Go is a brilliant book. It's a heartwarming book. It's a funny book. It's a, it's a infuriating book at times. It's an amazing book. Just to sum up, I love this description that Lionel has given about her own work, at least up until the publication of We Need to Talk About Kevin in an interview with Bomb Magazine, and this is from Wikipedia. She says that her books have been about anthropology and first love, rock and roll drumming and immigration, the Northern Irish Troubles, demography and epidemiology, inheritance tennis and spousal competition, and terrorism and cults of personality. And that was until 2003. So please enjoy this episode. Please let us know what you think on Twitter, on Instagram, or Facebook, or write a letter and put it in the mail, whatever floats your boat. Thank you for joining us. And this is Lionel Shriver. I'm primarily novelist. I, uh, my breakout book uh, is widely acknowledged to be We Need to Talk About Kevin, published in 2003, about the mother of a school killer. Uh, a phenomenon that, alas, is all too contemporary, almost 20 years later. Um, I got really tired of talking about school shootings, actually. (laughs) (laughs) uh, That book became a little too successful. Uh, But I've published many books since, and uh, in the process have also done a lot of journalism. So that includes hundreds of book reviews, many features, essays. I've done a lot of opinion journalism. I am currently uh, a fortnightly columnist for the British Spectator and um, also write for the London Times with some frequency. Uh, There's hardly a magazine or newspaper out there that haven't written something for. So um, I would say that those two elements in my professional life are 
uh, at some tension and there's, there's competition between fiction and nonfiction for, for my time, if nothing else. And, uh, I guess also my heart. Mm -hmm. And, um, how do you manage the tension? How do you, how do you balance those two needs between the fiction and the nonfiction? Well, the difficulty is that nonfiction has a much hard, more hard and fast due date. So it, it inevitably takes priority. If you've mm -hmm. got a column due tomorrow, you can't say, well, I'd really rather work on chapter four. Um, and, and that becomes a problem because it means that getting going on a fiction project can be infinitely delayed because there's always something else. Um, I have a new book ready to start uh, and um, mercifully for the next month, if I can keep it that way, I do not have any journalism assignments due. And this, this is the time to do it. Actually, I started, should we stay or should we go at Christmas um, in, in, in 2019? It's one of the nice things for me about being an expat is that uh, Whereas for everyone else, uh, they are inundated during the holidays with the demands of family. I don't have any family over here. And it's a blessedly solitary period when I'm left alone. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah, I imagine, you know, especially in the UK, I, I, at least I find that period um, so full of charm, the Christmas period and the holiday period. Um, about Should We Stay or Should We Go? Is the book your most recently released book, which came out this year? Um, I had I had mentioned to you before our our recording misfire that the book really blew me away. I mean, it, it was it was something I connected to so deeply that you know, even with a very satisfying ending, you feel that kind of wistfulness to leave it and to leave those people and that world, which is always a sign that the book is alive and not a dead thing. But one thing I wanted to ask you about is the the timing of the book. As you just mentioned, you you wrote it, or I imagine started writing it in 2019, but the book feels like it was written in real time. And that just struck me over and over because first you have the you have Brexit playing out in the novel between the characters. And I already had thought to myself, wow, this is quite current. Um for a book that's out and going through the publishing process alone takes many, many months, if not years. And then it catches up to the pandemic. And I was thinking, how do you do that? How is that possible to write a book that is, is so contemporaneous and still has that level, level of depth and that complexity? Um, and, and that's something we'll go into after this. But that was my first question right out the gate was, how is it possible to write like that, to write in, in virtually real time? Well, the timeline of that book has a weird backstory because, as I mentioned, I began this book in 2019 um, on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas. And uh, I did want the book to have a very contemporary feel um, to fill your uh, viewers in on the concept. It's about a, a couple in Britain, um, both of whom work for the National Health Service. And they, um, they've seen a, 
a, a lot of geriatric decay professionally. And uh, the wife's father has just died when the book begins and he's had dementia for over 10 years and it was horrific, you know? So um, they make a pact that they don't want this to happen to them and they want to leave it at a time of their choosing. And so they decide that once they both turned 80 on the wife's 80th birthday, uh, they will commit suicide together. And this is back when they're in their early fifties and therefore it's a distant prospect and a little too easy. (laughs) But um, then you basically turn the page in the book and they're, and she's about to turn 80. I mean, and that's, that's an effect that I believe reflects the experience of those years. I will testify, in fact, how quickly mm-hmm. um, time starts going. And it, I, I would have thought in my early 50s that 80 was a long time away. And uh, now that I'm 64, it seems like tomorrow. And, uh, and it will be effectively tomorrow. So... The concept of the book is that it's it's parallel universe. So, I mean, it sounds like a real downer book, but it's actually, I think, anyway, a lot of fun. In fact, often hilarious. So I, I go through 12 different endings that this yeah. that this pact uh, may may have. And some of those endings end up um in the range of speculative fiction. And I had a wonderful time with this book, but I, that the, the seminal, the, uh, the, the focal uh, date in this book that, that roots the entire story is the day on which the wife Kay turns 80. And um, as a matter of, of, of a, a kind of formal commitment, I decided that I could make anything happen after that date that I wanted to. Um, that's the, the point at which all bets are off and mm-hmm. it's, it's my imagination. But before then, it was going to adhere to historical truth. In my eagerness to make it feel once it was published, um, very much of the moment. At the end of 2019, I picked a date in the future. It was only three months away, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I thought the 29th of March was symbolically potent because that was the date on which the, the UK was originally scheduled to leave the European Union. So it was... It had that should we stay or should we go packed into the date. And I like that kind of stuff. Um, but I, so I figured, well, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen in the next three months, but surely that's pretty safe. What's going to happen by the end of March? <laughs> <laughs> Little did you. Uh, big surprise for me. Um, and at first, uh, when the pandemic hit, I thought, you know, maybe this is a catastrophe. Um, maybe I, I have planted a bomb under my own project. 
but I, I decided, no, this is just more material. This is just another story I can incorporate. This is another little detail that can, I can use to bring out the characters and, and to play with different outcomes, uh, especially different economic outcomes. Uh, so, so it ended up being a boon rather than a bust. I, I, uh, I went back and re, did some rewriting of the uh, earlier chapters that I'd already written. That didn't end up being very hard. In fact, the chapters got better. Um, so, um, so I ended up being grateful for the pandemic. And I was also, uh, in retrospect, uh, grateful to myself for making the right decision because had I instead said, well, why don't I just set the whole thing a year earlier and avoid the pandemic? I think mm-hmm. I would have condemned that book to feeling far more dated in the and in the past than it would have been arithmetically, because this is such a watershed historically that that uh, uh, futures that spun forward that did not include the pandemic uh, would have seemed more unreal and less probable and kind of out of it. So. That was the right decision, but this is the kind of thing you get into when you when you write fiction that is in any way bound to reality and historical truth. And and to me, it's interesting. It was, um, you know, the the what's in the future of the book post Kay's 80th birthday. It becomes. Um, I don't want to give too much away for readers because I really there is. It's an incredible experience to go through those series, those cycles of stories that come uh, subsequent to the birthday. And each one really takes you on a, a full and complete journey. Some of them are completely agonizing um, and some really just wanting to escape the way the characters wanted to escape some of the scenarios. And some are are delightful. As you said, all of them um, have an element of humor and wit and deprecation, um, which it leads me to think about something that Albert Camus once wrote in an essay on literature that um, was called Intelligence on the Scaffold, where he describes Proust uh, in The Search of Lost Time as a celebration of old age in the salons of um Madame de Guermont. And this book and other books of yours as well feel really like the opposite, a, a deprecation of old age, uh, this contempt and scorn for, for aging as well. But the really interesting thing about it, in, especially with this book, is that that becomes a celebration of life. That that to me is the other side of the coin when, I, when I've read you uh, writing about aging and old age and decrepitude is that death and aging actuate life. And I think that's something we really see, especially through Kay in should we stay or should we go? She, she, her appreciation of life starts to deepen and become more sharp. You know, there's one, there's one small um, little section here that I wanted to read, which is uh, Kay's just, cooking dinner. And and you write that Kay was sorry when all the potatoes were peeled. The tuber seemed harder and rounder and more resonant under a blade than ever before. The brandy apples for the crumble also seemed crisper, tartar, and somehow more forcefully in the world, insistent on taking up their rightful space on the cutting board. 
And I was really reminded there of Dennis Potter, the great English TV writer and producer who was diagnosed with terminal cancer, was given a few weeks to live. And he had this beautiful talk he did with Melvin Bragg about looking out his office window and seeing a cherry tree, a cherry blossom, and a, you know describing it as the most frothy, uh, most bright and vibrant tree he'd ever seen. Um, so that that was something I just wanted to put to you in terms of that relationship between how you look at aging, death, and life, because the, there's clearly a, a tension and a relationship there. Well, of course, that passage you just read was on the day that they're expecting to kill themselves that evening. Right. So one of the running themes of the novel is the way in which mortality is sharpening and and raises the stakes of everything. In fact, one of my favorite chapters is a latter speculative fiction one where there is a cure for aging and everyone effectively lives forever and looks 25 yeah. always. Um, and it seems wonderful at first and then gets strangely awful. <laughs> so... Mm -hmm you've got this persistent social problem of suicidal ideation. Most people don't act on it, right. but they can't handle immortality. It's immortality is flattening. And by contrast, there's another chapter where Kay is also coming up again towards the, her 80th birthday in the months before she's taking the pact seriously. So presumably this is the last year of her life. And she questions everything. And um, how she spends an individual evening suddenly seems of great moment. And what what really sobers her is the realization that the decision about how to spend every other evening was of equal moment. And she didn't realize it. She she spent her evenings casually. And then suddenly, in in coming up against it, uh, she, she wonders, you know. Should she really spend her time reading the week, you know, about a, a week that's already passed? Um, and if she shouldn't be bothering about, say, what's going on in Israel, <laughs> um, why had she ever? <laughs> and and I've, it's only mortality that makes you think this way. And it's mortality that makes the makes the apple seem so so real and big and as you, you know, as you read, you know, forcefully into the world. Um, and it's, you know, the hardest thing that we have to contend with is the fact that we're going to die. And weirdly, we hardly ever think about it. Um, I hardly ever think about it. I confess. Um, I have to force myself. Uh, and I, you know, like everyone else, I don't really believe in it. I don't think I'm going to die. Um, and not believing we're going to die makes life possible. But the other thing that makes life possible is, is the fact that we're going to die. And it's, it's, a, it's confusing, but it's also very interesting. And, um, you know, what, what becomes clear from the book is that, as you, as you kind of just said, it actuates, it gives significance to every, everything, even the trivial. Another... Um, Another passage that 
stood out in this regard is one in which you write that in a handful of months, they, they meaning Kay and Cyril, were planning to commit suicide, at which point there would be no EU, NATO, UN, or Commonwealth, and no song contest. There would be no UK, there would be no magpies, no sky, skies blue or otherwise, no quail eggs, no paper clips, no best friends with their noses out of joint, no cyberspace, no Wellingtons, no household dust mites, no six pound dis- discount coupons from Tesco if you spend 40 pounds by 7-11-19, no scalp eczema, no elusive concepts like populism, no such color as burnt orange, no words like lush, no, whose definition she'd never quite pinned down, no emotion called ebullience, and not just the word for it, but the very feeling of explosive joyful, joyfulness would exist no more. And I, I feel like that was exactly it, is that the um, the mundane, the trivial, the too small to notice become ebullient in, in the contemplation of death, in the confrontation of death that happens in only a way that that someone like Kay would ever experience because it, mm. because it's so it's, it, it becomes a fixture in their lives in, in the book. It becomes furniture in their lives. As you mentioned yeah. for 30 plus years. Well, she's a little more spiritually advanced than Cyril, or at least to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas at the same time, Kay is contemplating the obliteration of all that fantastic detail of ordinary life. Her husband is obsessed with Brexit and going on marches for a second referendum. He's a passionate remainer. And if anything, their pending demise plunges him more completely into this transitory present and into a scrap that you don't have to take very many steps back from to realize it's not that important. So it's a, they deal with it differently. She takes those steps back and wonders at all of this and what, 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 was, what was that? I mean, I think that's the one, that has to be, if you're given the chance to reflect at all, what happens when you die? What was that? What was that about? Right? That was it? Really? That was it? (laughs) It must be utterly befuddling. It's, um, it is, you know, paralyzing to think about it in a way on that level to really understand, to think that there is whatever, whatever there is, it is something. And as you pointed out before, we live as, as if death is a fiction. We live as if it's not real. Um, but, you know, and again, that's, that's where the structure of that book was so wonderful because it allowed for that exploration of different pathways. They're not, they're not pathways after death, they're pathways to death, but um, that kind of. I'm afraid you just froze. I'm sorry. Are you still hearing me? Okay, we've got a problem. Are you, are you, am I back with you? Now you're back. Okay. So hopefully it won't recur. Um, so 
you know, I, I think that's that's what you what you were talking about, which is that death constrains life. And you, another quote you have in the book is, I think unbridled freedom and passivity amount to the same thing. Being able to do anything is like being able to do nothing. Mm. And I, and I, I think what you just said about the flattening effect of immortality, you know, this is the flip side of that. Um, but I wanted to. It means choice doesn't matter. If you if you can choose anything, if you have the rest of your life to choose to do to do whatever you want and and there are it means there there's nothing at stake. Mm -hmm. So that you can marry someone and then you could just marry someone else. Right. Or you can take this job and then you can just take another job. Uh what makes the decisions we make important is that they are permanent and you cannot take them back. And they preclude making other decisions and you know you'll spend your 33rd year as you did and you don't ever get to make those decisions over again and that gives them enormous weight and for some people that weight is paralyzing so it's not altogether to the good uh but the alternative is worse and that is they don't matter and so who cares the uh and when people's lives really fall apart, that's where they go. Actually, they they don't they don't care anymore about the decisions they make or what the consequences are. And that's that's depression. Mm -hmm. I want to go um, just a little bit back in time um, in, in the chronology of your books to 2016 when you published the Mandibles. Mm -hmm. Um, which is again, just one of these books that sort of should not exist. There should not really be a book about, um, economic theory and the economic degradation of America. That's also riveting. It just doesn't seem like something that would work on paper and yet it works on actual paper, um, to give a bit of background. Well, I'll, I'll let you give the bit of background uh, about the book before we go on. Um, again, just to pricey, it's, uh, set in 2029 in October. Um, this is again, my, uh, being a sucker for these symbolic dates. So it's, you know, it's these centenary of the fall of the stock market in 1929 mm. and, um, a, a sequence of, Economic dominoes falls. Uh, the the U.S. is U, the U.S. dollar is demoted uh, and is no longer a reserve currency. There's another competing international currency called the Bancor, sponsored by China and Russia, backed by real goods, not just fiat currency. And then the president, in retaliation, says, "Okay, well, we're not going to repay the national debt." And of course, what that ends up doing is punishing mostly Americans because we think the Chinese hold most of the national debt, but they don't. It's Americans, pension funds, et cetera. Uh, the Chinese uh, have a surprisingly small proportion of the debt these days. Hmm. Um, and the economy in the United States goes down. The inflation rate goes through the roof because the government can't borrow and therefore prints tries to print 
its way out of a financial hole and that never works very well. And we're about to find that out. Uh, that it, it is a novel that contains a lot of economics, economic theory, but I, in, in preparation for writing the book, read a, a goodly stack of econ- economics books and discovered that they were riveting. And in fact, writing about e- economics, especially since 2008, has become like reading science fiction. You know, it, a lot of this stuff is about the end of the world. In fact, one of the only genuinely unrealistic aspects of the mandibles is that I address the collapse of the U.S. economy without ever implying that we took the rest of the world with us. And that that's implausible, frankly. But uh, at the same time, I just wasn't up for writing a book about the entire international collapse of the world. I need, I just, I don't think I'm that good. So I needed to limit the catastrophe a little bit in order to have a, 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 a focus. And it, of course that book is all about a single family and their experience of going from what they hoped was in future of quite a wealthy existence. Cause the, the patriarch, a 98 year old patriarch is quite wealthy. Um, but they never inherit the money because it disappears. Uh, so I tried to make it very personal and 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 uh, worm's eye view, if you will. But at the same time, you you do get the bird's eye view. Uh, and I I think I got away with it. My original draft had way more economics in it, mm. and um, oh, okay. maybe something in <laughs> me wishes that. I'd been able to publish all of it because I thought it was all so fascinating, but probably on a fictional level, I was right to parrot that. Uh, but I am hopeful that my enthusiasm for the subject, my sense of discovery, which is, 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 is that's what it's like when amateurs get into something, right? I went in as an amateur. I didn't know anything about economics. And, and therefore my enthusiasm was, was newbie enthusiasm. And I, I think I managed to impart that sense of excitement to the delivery of these theories. And, and it gives the, the book more intellectual heft. It makes it more interesting to me. It, it works on more than one level. I mean, it reminds me a little of, um, Oh, gosh, I don't remember who it was, but uh, John Grisham or someone like that. One of those popular writers who who would include uh, huge amounts of nonfiction information about about a, a place. Mm-hmm. And his readers loved it because it was like candy coated education. Uh, that, that's yeah. how I would think of, of those passages in the mandibles. Yeah, I mean, I, it. In a way, I wouldn't think of it as candy coating because it feels much more serious and urgent. Uh, it given is the urgent. Topic. It's huge. Yeah. It's 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 the biggest fear in my life. I know that we're supposed to be walking around being terrified of climate change, but climate change is very gradual. The right. effects are largely unknown. Um, there will probably be time to adapt. 
economic collapse can happen literally overnight Mm -hmm. and change everything and and make everything dysfunctional and suddenly uh, demote your concerns from what's on Netflix tonight to where are we going to get any food? I it's I am terrified of international financial collapse. And, you know, what's happened in um, in the pandemic has only sped up the high probability that it that we experience it not only within my lifetime, but perhaps in the next 10 years. And we have accelerated the growth of money to a mind boggling degree over a year and a half. Um, the fed increased the supply of dollars in the world by 35% and it's on track to do it again in the next year, another 24%. So, I mean, how can you do that and have the dollar be worth the same amount of money, worth the same value? You can't. And that's true of any quantity, any commodity. In a way, money is a commodity. Um, you can't produce infinite amounts of corn without the price of corn plummeting. Uh, money's not any different. And, and I, this is a real fear of mine. I mean, I, it, 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 I don't know how much it controls my behavior. I mean, funnily enough, I'm still something of a skin flint and um, always looking for bargains. And we, 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 you know, very modestly, I don't go out and buy lobster every night. Um, so in a way I'm not, I'm not acting on it because if I took myself seriously, then I would be spending every dime I've got and turning it into something real. Yeah. Gold as it were. I don't Uh, completely trust gold. hmm. And I, that's in the book. Right. Um, it is still legal. It's for the U S government to take your gold. Mm-hmm. They can take all of it. Right. And they know where it is. You know, they, they, there are there are big reasons why when you buy gold, it's basically registered. The US government knows you have it because they may want to take it away from you. It is something of a dangerous investment. It's it and I've given this some thought. The only way to really buy gold is to somehow get access to the real thing, this whole business of ETFs. Mm-hmm. I don't trust them either. You need mm-hmm. to get hold of real gold and bury it in the garden. Mm-hmm. That's the only way to do it. And it has to be off the books. And that I sounds... can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds so... Um, it sounds so you know, on the surface, crackpotish and um, like one of those prepper people living in a bunker stacked with lye. But it have, we- I have it in me, at least, <laughs> at least as a, at least constitutionally. 
<laughs> to be a prepper. I, well, uh, it, I, I'm a little too lazy to buy all those tin cans, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I have an apocalyptic turn of mind, and yeah. I'm always ex- I, I have that kind of dual track. Whereas right. on the one hand, intellectually, I am constantly expecting everything to fall apart. And on the other, on a daily basis, of course, I expect everything to stay the same. Right. Um, and that's sort of what I wanted to ask about with, with regard to this book, because on the one hand, just this week, or I think it was today or possibly yesterday, Elon Musk comes out and tell, saying he would scrap the new um, the $2 trillion spending bill that the Biden administration wants to pass. And you know, at the you you listen to this stuff, you listen to the political rhetoric, and you're like, oh great, you know, spending for public services, et cetera, sounds really awesome for everybody. And then you start to think about it, and you start to think about the things that you touched on in the book. And then if you um, you know, if you're not already afraid of what might happen, you read that book, The Mandibles, and you should you will be afraid, and you should be afraid because it's a very scary thing what's happening in the US with regard to money and with regard to what has happened to the dollar. It's not happening, it's already happened. And it makes it all very likely. And it makes it all there, there's nothing in that book as as exciting as it is to read. It, it is a really exciting book. There's just a lot going on. There's a lot of texture and complexity. But there's nothing in that book that doesn't and humor ring. and and endless humor. It's I mean it's yeah. it's which goes back I think in a way to the humor of um, should we stay or should we go, which is the humor of aging and the humor of the tragic humor of dementia, uh, which is really an in, beautifully um, beautifully portrayed in the in both books, but in this book, it's it just is very real. It's convincing because of the work that you put into the economics um, into the, and helping people readers understand what all this stuff means. But this is the question I have, and it really touches on something you just said, which is, you know, to what extent do you feel like this is an expression of, of personality? Um, you you write in the book. Plots set in the future are about what people fear in the present. They're not about the future at all. The future is just the monster in the closet, the great unknown. The truth is, throughout history, things keep getting better. But writers and filmmakers keep predicting that everything is going to fall apart. And I, I believe it's Willie who says that. It sounds like a Willie thing to say. Oh, I think it's that's Lowell. That's my economics professor. Ah, okay. That, okay, Lowell. That, that also... It's one of the only points in the book he's right. <laughs> <laughs> So that so that's the question. I mean, Lowell, and, and that actually having Lowell say that, and Lowell for as Lionel just mentioned, Lowell is this Keynesian economics professor who just is borrow borrow more, more and more credit, and everything's going to be just fine if we keep borrowing, spending, borrowing. Yeah, spending. he's 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 in some ways a clone of Paul Krugman. Mm-hmm. Who right? Classic Krugman type type stuff. And having Lowell say that, it does seem. Uh, in a way, stupidly optimistic that everything's just going to keep getting better, despite what the writers and filmmakers say. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have this book itself and the thesis that it's putting forward into the world, which is all this stuff is not just likely, it's probable. 
And this is how it plays out in a family in in your family, just as you'd mentioned about what, whether we go from deciding what to watch on Netflix as being the big crisis of the night to trying to find broccoli, you know, w- once a month till you have some vegetables in your diet. Um, but again, this is the question that I really wanted to ask you about is this book as convincing as it is, as based in essentially evidence as it is, to what extent is it also a projection of your self, of your fears, of your, you know, if you have this tendency to catastrophize? Um, well, to a large degree, all of my books are projections of myself. That's uh, that's the, in some ways, the fun part of the job. It's, it's also the um, frightening part of the job because it means looking at aspects of yourself which are not necessarily agreeable. Uh, the book itself has a tension in it uh, between, not just amongst the characters, but between the reader and the author. Um, the author sends mixed messages because passages like the one you read are signaling, don't completely trust this author, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? This author is apocalyptic. And this book is about the United States falling apart. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen. And remember who's telling the story. Um, and there's a, a conversation planted early in the book uh, in which one character espouses how old people they're all they're all alike they're all naturally apocalyptic they always think that everything's about to fall apart they always think that uh you know things are worse now than they used to be but the the reason is that that they're projecting their own experience of mortality onto the rest of the world and of course for them things are getting worse because they are falling apart and they therefore they think that everything else is falling apart too and their, the structure of their own lives is apocalyptic. They are going into the great nothingness. You know, they are facing utter oblivion. So they think that the, they, they put that out there and see oblivion on the way everyone. Of course, for them on a private level, this connects up with uh, that passage in Should We Stay? Uh, everything's about to disappear. Um, on a private level, the apocalypse is real. It's not delusion, mm-hmm. right? Right. But if you're younger, don't take this stuff seriously. And in fact, this the same character observes. You know, there's a there are some people who who as they age and face their own mortality, they kind of want to bring everyone with them. <laughs> They're resentful. Yeah. It's like I don't want you to have a good time without me, and therefore, you know, clearly. You know, climate change is going to destroy everything or or economic collapse. Right. And so you're being told on the one hand, this is I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell it as persuasively as I know how. And I'm going to show you how there are forces at work in the economy already that could logically lead in this direction. Um, And on the other Look at when the, the, this this woman was born in 1957. She's not going to be around that much longer. 
be suspicious, be very suspicious. There's also something in that, in the apocalyptic element that, you know, by the end of that book, you realize maybe it's not the worst thing. The worst thing that we imagine in our minds, oftentimes when it does happen, is not necessarily the terrible thing we thought it would be. And I think that's where this book brings it, brings that full circle because it's the the economic situation that the US is in is a function of how it conducts life as a country and as a culture, which is not the best way. I mean, it's excess, excess to a point of obscenity and to a point that the the inequality becomes obscene as well. So, you know, there is an element of reset there, which. Oh yeah. Well, there's a, there is a leveling aspect to economic collapse. When money is worthless, then people who have a lot of it are in the same boat as the people who don't have any. So, you know, that, that, that's dismally cheerful if there's such a thing. Well, there, there's also um, a And besides which, you know, the, the end of the book, because it skips forward to right. uh, 2047. Right. Um, it's actually, it's actually got a happy ending. It does. It really, it really does. And, and that's sort of what I meant is that some of the characters, um, the, the apocalyptic uh, forces kind of have this buffeting effect on their characters that, that it, it's, cauterizes them it cauterizes the wounds in their characters and yes and also there are passages that make it very clear that that this kind of duress and having to rebuild from nothing has actually been good for the country and that all the neuroses that we're building up literal and metaphorical about health about about mental illness about um you know all the all our fussy little hand wringing, navel gazing, yeah. you know, anxiety ridden uh, ways of being. Uh, they're just obliterated. You know when when you when you have to worry about um, lit- literally about feeding yourself and finding shelter, it's very clarifying. You know that a lot of these problems they're not in. The developing world. They only start right. emerging in the developing world once the prosperity I- increases. Uh, you can't afford to be neurotic. Right. Y- you you live on a, a level of survival, and there's a way in which that's that's mentally very healthy. I think that's the way people are supposed to be. That's the way animals are supposed to be. And I think physically, it's healthy in a way as, as well. I mean, I, I remember reading in Viktor Frankl. Um, man's search for meaning. This is a, a Viennese psychiatrist who had never done a day of manual labor in his life. He's in Auschwitz the next day, and he's conferring with a bunch of other doctors thrown into the camp about how, despite the labor, the beatings and everything, their bodies had no edema. There was no swelling from what they had endured. Is The body had just adjusted in that time frame. Um, and I think, you know, physiologically as, as well as psychologically, that I think that's the point that you that comes through in the book is that these people are forced to change in a way they never, ever, ever would be if things were in, in so-called normal times, um, which is a very, very interesting takeaway from that book. We're, we're sort of running short on time. So one, one more thing I wanted to ask you about, which is more about, about being a writer the craft, um, the challenge, you know, you, you're sort of known as you'd mentioned 
early in the conversation that uh, we need to talk about Kevin was a breakthrough book for you, which it was a breakthrough that came seven or eight books in to your career. That is a lot of writing, a lot of publishing uh, to not have the recognition that I think is what a serious writer needs and, and wants, and probably in your case, obviously deserves. How did you manage it? How did you manage going through those first seven books and not finding them resonate in way in in the way that you might I don't know maybe you did expect it maybe you didn't maybe it maybe it didn't matter to you but you know how did you get through how did you stay on the path? I think I probably sometimes underestimate to myself uh, when I reflect on those years uh, the degree of suffering they entailed. Um, and, and then I feel compelled to immediately add, of course, it wasn't real suffering in comparison to the kind of suffering that other people have. Um, but I resent that sense of obligation. Um, it was real suffering, you know, of, it, it was artistic suffering. If we're going to be, you know, lofty about it. It was simple. It was also simple human suffering to go go to an enormous amount of effort to do my very best and have it not rewarded. Now, at least those earlier books were published, and uh, though the uh, my real seventh novel uh, was not published until many years later, so I did face going through writing a book that didn't see the light of day. Um, the the books were sometimes well reviewed, but that doesn't matter. And I, I learned that the hard way. Um, it, it did not make me commercially viable. Mm-hmm. And uh, I inevitably got my hopes up. I'd, I'd write a book that I thought was important and and um, fun to read. Um, one of the first ones I I got my hopes up over was Game Control, which is still I would say underread, um, but is about demography, uh, which is one of my favorite subjects, still highly germane, um, but it didn't get noticed much. It didn't even get published in the United States. Uh, it was only published in the UK. Uh, it's available now, um, but, uh, and, and that was grievously disappointing. I, I, I spent huge amounts of work on that book. I read demography and epidemiology for a solid year before beginning it. And I moved to Africa for a year to write that book. I have actually, in, in some ways, my, my takeaway on, on that project was don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> don't ever work that hard on a project. Uh, too many eggs in the basket. And I don't think I have. I mean, even for the mandibles, I didn't. I mean, I didn't leave the country. Um, So, and and then I got my hopes up, especially over Double Fault, uh, which is about uh, competition in a marriage between uh, two professional tennis players over who's better. Um, And that that book actually sold for for what was then serious money. And 
that made me think that they were going to publish it with equal seriousness because you always hear that oh if they if they actually pay you something then they're going to want their money back and they'll make an effort but that's hmm, that's not always the case (laughs) (laughs) um sometimes they just cut their losses uh my editor fell out of favor and and uh it didn't make any impact didn't even go into paperback and uh so I mean, part of what kept me going was spite. Hmm. And part of it was just I'd get another idea for a book and I'd want to write it. And that was probably more seriously what what kept me in the game. In that once I'd started it, I was going to finish it and I was going to bring it to fruition as as in a form as, as best as I could. I mean, that's... And the work is fun and interesting. So diving into a manuscript was the best way to hide from my larger story that I was a failing fiction writer. And there was certainly a point at which once I wrote a whole book that I couldn't get printed at all, uh, that I, I had to decide whether this is worth it. And I, I reasoned that I had, I had at least got most of my books into print and I shouldn't be a big baby about not publishing one of them. And I had another idea. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write that book and I wrote it. Uh, And that, that next book. And that was Kevin. Kevin. Right. So that ended up being a, the right decision. So as a consequence, my story is sometimes very inspiring as I think it should be for Mm -hmm. uh, aspirant writers uh, who, who need encouragement and uh, need examples of people who have uh, not given up and finally been rewarded, but I'm not so, um, you know, Aesop's fable about this, that, uh, I think you should necessarily take my story that way. Uh, it could easily have ended otherwise. I mean, yeah. it was not e- it was not easy to get Kevin published. It was turned down by at least twenty agents in the U.S. It was turned down by thirty publishers over here. So it could have gone the other way, and it could have never seen the light of day. It's a brutal yeah. world out there. I saw a um, a literary agent roundtable, a bunch of literary agents on video talking about what they do. And there was a question about what was the most painful pass, the what most painful project that they had turned down for each of them. And one of them said it was, it was Kevin. We need to talk about Kevin. And I watched that and I thought to myself, who would ever pass on that? What literary agent would say, and you know, it was her and 19 others, it turns out. But I think the point there is that as you know, writers or anyone else doing anything else that they're doing in the world, they receive that kind of rejection as a referendum on on who they are and what they do, which mm-hmm. maybe it is, but often it's not. And I think you have to just allow that 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 room for the the doubt. Yes, I think there. that's the best lesson to take from my story. Not so much, you know, if you keep at it, then eventually you'll succeed. Right. No, not necessarily. <laughs> and um, the lesson is that 
it's not just a brutal world out there. It's a, an arbitrary world out there. Yes. And when you, you know, I, it breaks my heart when people who have maybe sought my advice and, or, and, and I've read their book and, um, and it's pretty good. And then they get rejected and rejected and rejected. And because no one instinctively wants to live in a world that is arbitrary, that is morally arbitrary. That means that you it doesn't matter what effort you make or it doesn't matter what the quality of your work is. Uh, it's just random. Mm-hmm. That's a terrible world to inhabit, <laughs> right? And therefore, you want to believe even if it seems against your own interest, that these rejections are meaningful. They're considered. They are a, a verdict that you're to take seriously. There's something wrong with your book. And it's being spotted over and over again by all these agents. There's, they may not be quite honest what's wrong with it, but there's something wrong with it. Right. Not that there's something wrong with the agents. And actually, they probably didn't read it. Uh, these to be a little more sympathetic these agents are inundated the whole digital submission process has been a catastrophe for everyone it seemed really great at first Mm -hmm. because it meant oh you can send out a hundred copies of your manuscript at once but unfortunately so is everyone else so uh, it means that actually digital submission has reduced your access to the gatekeepers Yes. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sympathetic that the gatekeepers can't can't handle the deluge of stuff that comes in through the metaphorical transom. Um, but uh, don't, that as consequence, it's you, your manuscript is usually going to be read by some assistant who doesn't know anything. And you shouldn't take it seriously. It doesn't mean anything. No. Um I think, it, you know, one thing you, you wrote recently, um, I, I forget exactly where, but you, you write that we can safely infer that if an agent submits a manuscript written by a gay transgender Caribbean who dropped out of school at seven and powers around town on a mobility scooter, it will be published. And whether or not said manuscript is an incoherent, tedious, meandering, and insensible pile of mixed paper recycling, that I feel is the one truth. It, it, the one, um, the one thing we can sort of plant a flag in regarding the the publishing process and the being picked process is that it, it goes with fads and fashions and ideologies, mm-hmm. and even to a less extent, to a greater extent rather than it, than business. I feel like that that often takes front seat, where the business side of things takes a back seat. It becomes so faddish, um, and well, you know, publishing is still something of what what used to be called a gentleman's profession, in spite of the fact that they're all women now. <laughs> um, they don't take their commercial obligations seriously. And certainly that's the case more recently. You're right. Uh, the whole um, woke thing, the political correctness, whatever we're going to call it now, has taken over publishing wholesale. And I I find it horrifying. In fact, it's astonishing I'm still published. It's astonishing that um, HarperCollins sticks by me because for those of you who do not know, (laughs) I don't have any woke credentials. Um, And, uh, but I'm an anomaly now. Yes. No, I'm, 
I'm one of the only fiction writers being published. And I emphasize being published because I think there are a lot of other fiction writers and they're not being published um, who, who do not have standard rigid left-wing views. And uh, right now, the biggest qualification for, for publication in the Western publishing industry is identity. So, you know, if you've got the right ethnicity or skin color or sexual preference, uh, or, you know, if you've transitioned, then you've got a chance. But uh, if you don't have any of these distinguishing group characteristics, it's, it's more murderous to be published than ever. And if you've got uh, anything but left-wing views, you're going to have trouble also. Uh, The irony being that I think there is an enormous amount of money to be made in the anti-woke industry, right? Those, those books sell very well. Yes. The, The larger public isn't into this stuff, right? In fact, if they know anything about it, they can't stand it. And therefore, the commercial opportunity is enormous. And they're not, an awful lot of publishers are not taking advantage of it. They're just worried about, you know, the editorial assistance and whether or not they're going to get huffy. And it's, it's, it's not just a catastrophe for these companies. It's a catastrophe for readers. And it's also a catastrophe for writers who, who don't fit the mold. And those are often the best writers. I mean, the, what the people who at least used to be attracted to this profession were, were weirdos and outliers. <laughs> yeah. I, I speak I think, for myself. <laughs> I think you speak for the rest of us too. Um, I, I spent the better part of a decade writing what turned out to be not by intention, just that is what it now is an anti-woke novel. It's a novel. Uh, it's, there are many things in it, but part of it is anti-woke. It's, it's, uh, it, it takes, it's a takedown of that idea. And I don't imagine that it will necessarily be snapped up by a big five or big four these days publisher, but I'm okay with that. That's the that's the real freedom. Is that today we have other ways, ways that including including methods that hark back to many centuries ago of serialization, of pamphleting, of whatever it takes to make the book a success. Not to just print it on and thud it down on your own coffee table, but to really push it into the world, get it read, and it, that's actually possible today. And I think that is very very uplifting for a lot of people because they can have an impact. They don't have to fall into the the chasm of the publishing industry or any other industry. So, you know, but to hear it put that way, I think is sobering as well, that it's it's sort of this industry that's undergone ideological capture to its own financial detriment. That's the part that really astounds me. When you add on, just like the news media, um, the news media has invested in woke ideologies to its own financial detriment, to it, the detriment of its share prices and its shareholders. Mm. That's where I, that's what really boggles my mind when I look at CNN's ratings, when I look at the New York Times's readership. Um, but this is the world in which we live. I know you are getting short on time. I want to be respectful of your time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, anything else uh, you'd like to put out there to people who are trying to understand being creative in a chaotic world? Um, well, keep doing it if you enjoy it. Uh, but it's, it is a difficult time to, to be ornery. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but, you know, I'm on the side of the ornery and eventually we'll win. The ornery always win. I think that's a great bumper sticker. Um, Last question, what are you reading, if you don't mind divulging? Oh, gosh. I'm reading a nonfiction book by Matt Ridley and another author whose name I don't remember um, about the origins of COVID-19. Oh, Matt Ridley is amazing, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know him slightly. and um, I was just conversing with him on Twitter an hour ago. Um, and Alina Chan as well. Yes. They, they yes. So I'm about yes. halfway through that. I I read more nonfiction books than I used to, which is still not a lot, but uh, I, I used to just not read nonfiction books at all. So it's an interesting, t- I've, I've turned a little more toward nonfiction and I have an appreciation, I have, have an improved appreciation for nonfiction. As a matter of fact, I, um, I just filed my spectator column yesterday and mentioned Matt, Ridley in it, um, among many others. And it's one of those rare um, columns, which is positive. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not about the end of the world. (laughs) Uh, I find it very difficult to find anything good about COVID-19. But this is what I, because it's made me even more misanthropic than I was to begin with, uh, completely disheartened by how readily whole populations have rolled over and uh, sacrifice their civil rights in, completely yes. uh, and do everything they're told it just makes my skin crawl. So this column is a tribute and to a lot of nonfiction writers and some doctors and epidemiologists uh, who have gone against the grain, mm-hmm. who have been ornery, if you yep. will. And, uh, exercised actual independent thought and i am incredibly grateful to them they have kept me sane for the last two years and uh they give me hope for humanity you know we're not all we're not all lost there are still people out there who are thinking and have the sense of humor and don't do everything they're told most of all, don't think what they're told. And I find that incredibly encouraging. It, it is. It's inspiring. I think it, we can all take heart in that. And I think that's more more of us than people really want to let on, um, possibly most of us. Have I think there are more of us out there than we realize. Yeah, definitely. It, it's, you know, the, the silent majority is back. But um Thank you so much, Lionel Shriver. This has been incredible. Um, Anywhere people should go to find your work aside from your books on Amazon. No, I'm sure there are a lot of secondhand places. (laughs) (laughs) Or my attic. Come to my house. 
I have huge numbers of copies of my own books. I don't know what to do with them in many different languages. <laughs> Please take them away. Foul, I hope you've got your foul matter as well and dragging it around with you. Right. Uh, Inside but, joke. <laughs> read, read them, read the mandibles and I think everyone will get that. So once again, thank you so much. This has been really great. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for joining me today on the Burning Castle podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Rinsberg, A-S-H-L-E-Y-R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G. And follow the podcast on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Till next time.